First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Who should we trust? What should we trust in this life? The three questions that Thessalonians is asking us is, who do we trust or what do we trust? Who to love or how to love? And then, what to hope? What do you think about trusting God when it comes to this very pervasive topic, this issue that fills all our existence and all our media about love and romance and sex. Why does God even care about those things? I mean, he must be busy with all of creation, you know, all the stars of the heaven. Why would he care what we do with those things? Why does it even matter to God? Now, we know what the Bible teaches. You've all heard it here and you've all read it in the Bible many, many times that God intended sex only between a man and a woman in the sacred boundaries of marriage. And it's here in our text, if I can point you to it, verse 2. For you know what commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And that word, sexual immorality, you know it's that word pornea. I say you know it because it's mentioned so often the root word to our English word pornography, but it's a broad word. It refers to every kind of sexual expression that is outside of what God intends, that is a man and a woman in marriage. Now, it's an odd thing, though. I feel it. I don't know if you feel it. Everywhere you look, the current is against that kind of teaching. It's even mocked in most places in our culture. So you look at celebrities and You look at politicians, you look at teachers, you look at academics, look at all the media, movies, television, music, and they all give a different message about what is right and what is good and what is wise and what would make us happy and fulfilled as human beings. And it's it's contrary to what this says. In fact, they say that what the Bible teaches about sexual morality and sexuality and gender in general is ignorant. And even worse, I think this hurts us as Christians even more. Not just ignorant, but it's just downright mean. It hurts people. So I'd like to look at this issue through our text today because it really raises the question about whom do we trust? Because everywhere the message is contrary to what God says in the Bible. And it raises this question in a very powerful way for some people And they find it unable to trust the Bible because the forces pushing the other way are so strong. 
So I'd like to look at four statements that we hear very often and consider each of them from this text. There's a lot more to say about this text and there's a lot more to say about these statements, but in a limited time, I'm just going to look at these four statements. First, love can't be wrong. Second, it's nobody's business what two people do. Third, biblical teaching is just old-fashioned and ignorant. And third, I can't deny the way I feel. So I'd like us to look at this as you turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. And here's the first statement, love can't be wrong. I mean, love is good. Who would argue with that? Certainly we can't as Christians. We've sort of made love famous, haven't we, in the world? And the truth is, this kind of love that we're talking about, romance and sexuality, is just delightful. It overwhelms us. I mean, you can't work or sleep or think or do anything sometimes when you're in the embrace of this kind of love. How can something that is so good and feels so good be wrong? And so we give, as Christians, our strongest reasons to abstain from sexual immorality. For example, pregnancy. This used to be more prominent than it is now. You have to abstain because you don't want to deal with pregnancy before marriage. And someone's going to say, yeah, but you know, now contraceptives are easily and cheaply available. We say, well, health. And it's true, there's many diseases that are transmitted in that intimate kind of relationship. In fact, if you look at the health statistics, it shows that one man with one woman for one lifetime is the healthiest possible thing you can do. But someone will say, you know, you've heard that there's medicines now, right? There's treatments available. And so we say, yeah, but, you know, there's also the psychological harm that you can do. And it's very fascinating to read about it, how God has designed our bodies in every kind of relationship. When you connect with someone, you know, skin to skin, close to someone, things happen in our bodies. There's chemical changes that take place that affect our feelings and affect our brain permanently. We form bonds with that person. And so we could say, to break that bond, who knows what kind of emotional damage it might do, and someone's going to say, yeah, I, I know, but I know what I feel, and it's real. I don't really even think I'm taking a risk. So then we say, yeah, but think about how it affects society. And it's fascinating to read how, at least beginning a hundred years ago, and maybe even earlier, people have written about their studies. Anthropologists have studied old and new cultures, and they've said that in every culture where monogamy was not honored, where sex was not confined to this marital relationship, the culture seems to decay, it unravels. The word they use is that it loses its creative energy. And of course, someone's going to say, I, I don't know about all that. All I know is how I feel right now. That's not my business. Now, I have to say, all these arguments are based on wisdom. And I think they have power and they have strength and they appeal to everybody, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, and everybody is free to accept them or reject them. They can study them. They can say, I agree or I don't agree. But I want you to notice something. None of those arguments are used in our text. That's not the appeal that's being made to Christians like you and me. That's not the reason behind this command to abstain from sexual immorality. Here's verse 1. Finally then, brethren, 
we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, so you do so more and more. Walk and please God. Now, that expression you'll see in many other places in the New Testament. That's sort of this one phrase summation of what the Christian life is all about. That we are those who live, that's what walking means, who live so as to please God. I want to please God. Is that what your goal is in life? That's what a Christian does. So the foundation of sexual morality for a Christian is, how can I please God? Why? Well, he's the creator. We know that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, this revelation came to the Thessalonians. Their hearts are open to realize that this is the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And so we know that he knows the purpose for which he made everything. He knows how everything works together beautifully and fruitfully because he made it that way. And what's more, we know that he has spoken. We talked about this a little, a couple weeks ago. In the Bible, he tells us what pleases him. And he speaks about many subjects. I think it's wrong to think that God is sort of obsessed with sex, as though that's the only thing he speaks about. He says a whole lot more, I think, about our words and our language. He talks about our money and our possessions. He talks about all of our desires. He talks about our desire for food. He talks about our desire for justice and vengeance. And yes, he talks about our sexual desires also. And so he says, here's what pleases me. So how do we please God? Well, someone's going to say, I know how to please God. Just do everything he says and he'll be happy. And I'd say, yeah, that's great. Except for one thing, nobody can do that. The Bible itself declares that. Nobody can do that. So how do we, as those who are imperfect, those who are unable to do everything that God demands we do in order to please Him, how do we please God? Actually, there's a one-word answer. Faith. Sometime, maybe even now, if you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews 11.6. I say sometime because I'm only going to quote one phrase, but you can look at it later. Trusting him, that's what pleases him. Hebrews 11.6, it is impossible to please God without faith. It's the critical ingredient in amazingly bringing pleasure to the master of heaven and earth. And then it continues, listen to this. This means believing that God exists, of course, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's what real faith is. So faith means, yeah, I believe in God, but that he rewards us, that I'm blessed, my life will be fruitful and happy, that God, who has all the riches of heaven and earth in his hands, will smile on me if I do what he says, if I please him. That's what faith is, and that's what pleases him. So love is love, yeah. How do you explain to someone, though, that our desire, even in our loving relationships, is to please God? Because we know that's the best thing we can do. What's wrong with love, they say? So, well, we give our reasons. We talk about health and psychological health and social disruption and, and all that. And I think those are fine. We may even throw a couple Bible verses at them. But the problem we have as Christians in trying to explain sexual morality is that we don't go deep enough. We start at those surface issues. So what we have to say is, before I answer, I have to ask you a question. Because 
We're speaking different languages here, you see. You're speaking this language over here, and I'm speaking a language that only makes sense if I believe in God. So I want to ask you, do you believe in God? Everything I say is couched or based on resting on the foundation of that. Do you trust? That's what I mean. Do you trust that God is loving and wise and good and that he loves us, that he actually cares about us, wants us to be fruitful and protects us from all harm? Because that's what I believe. My whole life is resting on that. And I have a second question. It's okay to say you believe in God, and then I have no idea what pleases him, but I have a second question. Do you also believe that God has spoken, that he's revealed what pleases him, that he's actually spoken in the Bible? I do. That's why when I want to please God, when I want to make my life fruitful, I follow what he says in the Bible, or at least that's what I pray for. That's what I struggle to do, because I know there's nothing better I can do for my life. I live to please God. The Christian life. You see, everybody wants to please themselves. It's the natural thing to do. I want a Klondike bar, so I'll go out and buy one and eat it. That's just the way things work. I'm angry, so I'll find some way to hit back. I've been neglected, so I'm going to make a scene and let everybody know that I feel neglected. That's just the way we are. We live by our desires. But we learn that it's not always the happiest thing to do what we want. Our desires are fallible and they mislead us. And slowly through the years, we learn that. You know, if a toddler is out on the playground, he's got a clump of dirt he's about to put in his mouth and mom grabs it and takes it away, he's going to cry as though he's taken away the love of his life. I have no reason to live anymore, mom. You took this dirt away. But then slowly he learns, ah, dirt isn't all that great. It happens. Sometimes, as adults, we have to learn, oh, a stack of pancakes with syrup dripping all over. That sounds so good to me. I'm going to eat them all. And then you think, you know what? Last time I did that, I really didn't feel that good afterwards. So even though I right now want to do this, I'm going to deny myself, say no to my desire, because actually I'll be happier. So we learn. Slowly we learn to control ourselves. And then There's times when we actually say no to what we want in order to bring pleasure to someone we love. You know, we'll spend money, not on ourselves, but to buy a gift for someone we love, make them smile. Dad will come home from work, dead tired. He's just dreaming all the way home of putting his legs up on the chair and resting, but the kids are there. Oh, they want to wrestle and play with dad. And what does he do? He wrestles and plays with them because he realizes that actually that'll make him happier than putting his feet up. Seeing their smiles and hearing their giggles will refresh him. There's all kinds of reasons where we have to say no to our own immediate desires and we realize that actually it's happier for us to do that. And so that's what our text is saying. But how do we explain that to someone who doesn't No, hasn't experienced the love of God, the love of God in Christ Jesus, and doesn't know that to please him is the best thing that we could possibly do. I want to please God, we're saying to them. That's why I'm making this choice. That's why I'm living the way I am. That's why I believe what I do about sexual morality and all the other related aspects. In fact, I want to tell you that if you want to know why I live the way I do, my life really makes no sense 
apart from my faith in a God of wisdom and love and goodness who wants to do me good with all his heart and soul. Without that, you can't understand why I am the way I am. It's like asking me to explain why the planets circle around the sun without referring to gravity. You, know, you come to me and say, explain to me why the planets go around the sun, but please, let's not bring this whole gravity thing into it. That's like saying, explain to me your sexual morality, explain to me why you live the way, but let's not bring God into this. There's no way for me to do it. Everything I do, everything I believe rests on the foundation of the God who revealed himself in Christ Jesus. Love is love. And one of the things we love is to please the Lord our God. So here's the second statement. It's nobody's business. I think we can kind of sympathize with that, can't we? It's a private matter between those who are involved in this loving relationship. Don't be nosy. Just stay out of their business. Only those who are involved in this loving relationship matter. They have the right to decide what's right and wrong, and nobody else can speak to that. And so what's our answer? Well, I think the Christian answer from our text is that there is someone else whose love is involved in every relationship, and that's the triune God. Did you notice how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned in our text? Just very quickly, verse 1 says, we've instructed you how you ought to walk and please God. And God, very often in the New Testament here, refers to God the Father. He says in his introduction, verse 1 of the first chapter, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Father is involved in this relationship and the command is that we should please God. The Father needs to be pleased in every relationship. And then if you go on, verse 2 and 3, for you know what commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This commandment of God was revealed to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as you read the Gospels, you know that Christ addressed these very same issues. He's involved. And then lastly, look at verse 8. See, he who rejects this teaching is not rejecting man. This is not cultural or tradition, he's saying. It's not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The promise of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian, and he directs our path. Yes, when our desires arise, so does the impulse of the Holy Spirit to please God. That's what Galatians 5 is. And we're told to walk by the Spirit, step by step to do what the Holy Spirit is asking us to do. So here it is, the triune God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're involved in the relationship. You can't say, I don't care what they think. And God's will is for us to be holy in our sexual life. Look at verse 3 again. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sanctification. I know it's a big word, but you know that the very heart of it is this first word, sancta, which means holy. God intends for us to be holy. It's the will of God for us to be sanctified. That is to be made holy. Holiness is, a, I think, a strange word. I've always struggled with it. Some ways it's negative. Actually, if you look up the definitions in a lot of places, it's a negative definition. It's what holiness means that it's not this, it's not that, it's not that. And so 
growing up in the church, you know, you'd hear sermons, you'd hear teachings, you'd hear Sunday school teachers say, you have to be holy. God wants you to be holy. And to me, it sounded like, here's what I mean, Emmanuel. Make a list of all the things that are fun, quit doing them, then you'll be holy. It's just a negation of life, negation of joy and happiness. And in the Bible, holiness is not exactly defined. I think maybe one way that we begin to understand holiness in the Bible is by the response to holiness that people have and that beings have. Someone has said that the response to holiness we find in the Bible is summed up in two words, fear and fascination. Kind of like that. I've been thinking about that. Fear because, wow, here is God towering above us in majesty and glory and power, infinite in power, immense, unbelievable And so we tremble before him. And yet, at the same time, everything that God is is also beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. It's breathtaking. And so we can't take our eyes off of him. So the angels, when they behold the glory of God in the Old and the New Testament, just say, holy, holy, holy. They just keep repeating that. It's almost as if they're mesmerized by the beauty of holiness, fear and fascination. Because God is holy, everything that belongs to God is holy. Everything that's in the presence of God is holy. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord's day, the one day in seven is kept apart as holy because it says it's God's day. When Moses came before the burning bush, God says, the ground on which you walk is holy. Take your shoes off because it's in my presence. The temple was holy because it was God's dwelling place. And so in the same way we are called holy. Did you know that New Testament refers to you as saints? The same root word as is used here in sanctification. Exactly the same root word. You're the holy ones. Why? Because you belong to God. His spirit indwells you. And so scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter that we are the temple of God. See, God's spirit indwells us. So We're holy, and it says, therefore, even our bodies are holy. Everything we do with our bodies has to be holy. It has to show the holiness of God. And that's why it says here, this is the will of God, your sanctification. God wants our sexual life, even our view of our own sexuality, to be holy and beautiful, to please Him. So, people say, it's nobody's business. And for us as Christians, we say, well, it's God's business. Because he loves us, and we love him, and he's involved in everything we do, in every relationship, and our desire is to please him in everything we do, and in every relationship. So here's the third phrase. Someone will say, well, you know, this is, this is really old-fashioned and ignorant. History is just sort of screaming past you, and one day they'll be mocking you. And I think we have to admit that sometimes we feel a bit old-fashioned. You know, we feel like the Amish stuck in the past. We feel like pretty soon there'll be tour buses pulling up to our church. Look, man and a woman actually married. Take a picture, quick. (laughs) Sounds strange. We think it'll happen in just a few days. But friends, it's a lie. It's a lie. You study cultures. If you study the culture that surrounded Israel, all the other cultures, if you study the culture that surrounded that early church in the New Testament, 
you find that everything that's happening in our culture was happening in those cultures. No difference. It's old. It's thousands of years old. In fact, what's new, what's fresh, what's radically different is the New Testament teaching on sexuality and marriage. Just very briefly to give you some examples, sexuality for Roman men particularly was completely selfish, free of restraint. They could satisfy their desires with anyone in the household at any time, male or female. In the New Testament, there's this interesting window as to the world from which people were being saved and brought into the church. I've talked about this before, especially on Wednesday night, but 1 Corinthians 6, if you look at 9 through 11, you find out that there's a list of what people used to be. And if you look at that list, you find that most of it is accepted and even celebrated in our culture, just as it was back then. But then they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and they were transformed. Their thinking was changed. So everything we see is well known in the early church. It was the very nature of their society and their culture. Fertility cults abounded, full of male and female prostitutes. And archaeology shows that this was the case in Thessalonica as well. The whole region, all of the ancient Roman world. What am I saying? I'm saying this is not new what we're seeing around us. This is not modern. This is not the result of new scientific investigations. This is as old as the hills, what we see. And so that means God's people are going to be different. They were different in the Old Testament. They were different in the New Testament. And you're going to be different than the whole culture. Just get used to it. That's how it's going to be. And that's how it's always been. We'll always seem odd and people will question us because they don't understand that we live to please God. You know, once upon a time, Christians were called cannibals. I've mentioned that before because people thought that in the communion meal, they were actually eating flesh and drinking blood. Ignorance. Once upon a time, Christians were called atheists, as you know, because Christians didn't worship Caesar. And so we're going to be called ignorant and backward because we want to please God in the way we live as sexual beings. They don't understand. I've quoted before from this letter to Diognetus. Diognetus seems to be one who's interested in the church and Christianity. And this letter is written by someone. It's a rather long letter explaining what believers do and how they live. In chapter 5 of that letter, pretty long letter, right? If it has chapters. Chapter 5 of that letter just says, As Christians marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Something odd about them. They share a common table. They're hospitable, but not a common bed. They don't believe that sexual favors can be handed out outside of marriage. So this is not old-fashioned. It was distinct in the Old Testament. The teachings of the New Testament were distinct from the culture. It's radically different from what every other culture around God's people was doing. But it's fresh. It's new. It's God's way that he wants us to live. So it's different. God wants us to live to please him. And our sexual morality begins not with our desires, which is the way every other culture decides. What do you want? Go do it. Just be safe. Just don't hurt anybody, but do what you want. But our morality does not begin with what we want, but it begins with a desire to please 
the one true God who has won us over by his magnificent love in Christ Jesus. And we love him. We enjoy pleasing him. And we trust with all our hearts that there is great reward in pleasing God and living a life that pleases God. It sets us apart. Get used to it. So that brings me to the fourth statement. You can't deny your feelings. It's probably unhealthy to deny your feelings. Yeah, if your feelings don't line up with what the Bible says you should or should not do, then you can't deny them. That's just who you are. Now, I know there's some here who might feel that way. In fact, there's some listening who might feel absolutely defeated by the way that their sexual desires are leading them in their lives. I've tried, they're saying. I've tried, and I just can't change. I just can't change. Now, I want to tell you something. What you're feeling is exactly what the Bible says every one of us feels and should feel apart from Christ. For example, you could read in Romans 7, but it talks there about Paul's own battle with his desires. We know what's right, but we can't do it. We know what we should do, but we can't. We're pulled this way and that way, and we can't resist the pull. We feel absolutely hopeless. We just cry out, is there anyone to help me? And the answer for many people is silence. And so there's these struggles that we have. The struggle to abstain if you're single. It's a strong struggle, isn't it? And maybe the struggle with sexual attractions outside the boundaries of your own marriage. Maybe it's sexual desires for the wrong person. And sometimes it's a lack of sexual desire. That's not the way God made me, we say. Sometimes it's pornography. Other times it's all these fantasies fueled by novels and movies. And we live in that world. And we feel helpless. We know what we should do, like Paul did in Romans 7. And we feel helpless to do it. Who's going to help me? So I want you to look at verse 3 here. Tremendous verse, full of hope. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. You say, well, that sounds absolutely hopeless to me because that's the very thing I'm trying to do and I can't do. But I just want you to look at the first phrase. This is the will of God. Listen, if this is the will of God who loves you, wants to do you good with his whole heart and soul, then you know that he will help you with everything that he has at his disposal to make sure that you're whole and healthy and fruitful. What parent wouldn't do that? What parent wouldn't help a child to do what is right and good and healthy for that child? That would make that child happy. And our Father is the perfect Father in heaven. So what to do? How to avail ourselves of God's help? Well, I'll say this. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the first issue you should deal with. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And that might be you. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've failed, I've failed, I've failed. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, then the promise, I will give you rest. That's the first place you have to begin. You have to acknowledge that Jesus is who he said he was, the one true God revealed in person. And as you give your life to him, as you say, yes, I want to follow you, he will bring rest, peace in your soul. He will give you strength to do what he calls you to do. He will allow you to please God. 
So that's the first thing. I invite you to do that if you haven't ever do that. Just simply look up to Christ in your heart and say, I do believe you're my Lord and my God. I accept that. And here on, I will follow you. Give me your rest, your peace in my heart. And what if I'm a believer? Well, then take heart. If you're a believer, first of all, don't be confused by all the promises of happiness and fulfillment that you're hearing all around you. They're all going to fall flat. If you're struggling, those promises are very alluring. You might be struggling in your home. You might be struggling at work. You don't find any happiness anywhere. And here's the promise of easy happiness. Don't fall for it. But secondly, keep it simple. Tell yourself these things. I trust God. And I trust that he has spoken in the Bible. And I want to please him. That's what my life is all about. It's a struggle right now, but I'm going to ask God for grace to continue to just please him, believing that there's a reward in that faith. That's what the Bible tells me, and I'm going to accept that. God will reward me as only he can. Why would he reward you? Because he loves you. He loves you. Psalm 35, verse 27 says, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. And that's you. God delights in your welfare. Believe that. That means he's at work at you. He's at work in you at this moment, and he will continue to work changing you, growing you, changing your heart, your mind, your desires, until he brings it to completion, until we see him face to face. Paul wrote about that in Philippians, the first chapter, verse 6. He says, and I am sure of this, That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that, yeah, this life, this pilgrimage has incompleteness about it. We do struggle to please God, but we're not alone. God is at work in you. And this process is going forward. You may say, I don't see any progress. Well, God is doing what he promised he would do in your life. And he will keep doing it till he brings it to completion when we see Jesus face to face. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, holy God, beautiful, perfect, majestic, glorious God, we thank you that you love us. And thank you that you're inviting us to take part in the beauty of your holiness here. Thank you that this is not a hammer with which you're hitting those who are already weak, and downtrodden. This is a promise, Lord, to lift us up, to experience more of what you intended us to experience in all of your gifts, including sexuality and gender and sex. We pray for one another, Lord. You know our struggles. All of us, all of us struggle in some way. How desperately we need you, Lord, to be our Savior. How desperately we need your strength and your grace to uphold us to mold us, and yes, to sanctify us. And we entrust ourselves into your hands. We pray for those, Lord, who don't yet know you. Perhaps even today is the first time you have invited them in their heart to turn to you and call you Lord and God and truly walk after you. Especially pray, Lord, that you would hold them in your grip. Let them experience your love in a fresh and in a new way today. Let them know the worthiness and the joy of walking after you. Your holy name we pray it. Amen.
I don't know if a friend has ever invited you on a hard hike. Come on, we can do it. It's going to be tough. It's really steep in places. The rocks are slippery. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but you have to wake up at three or four in the morning because we've got to get there before dawn. Because to see the sunrise on that scenery is just spectacular. And so you trust your friend and you go and you're walking up in the dark. Your knees are skinned because you keep slipping and falling. But you keep going because you trust your friend. Friends, that's what life is like. And maybe some of you are on that hard, steep, stony part of the pilgrimage in your following of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you're hearing is the voice of Jesus saying, trust me, trust me. There's something spectacular that waits ahead. So that's my benediction. May the love, the tender love of the Lord Jesus Christ keep you and uphold you during this time of struggle and all the days of your life. Amen.